from the Teaching and Learning Collaborative at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts, I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, where we dive deep into the art and science of teaching and learning. My guest today is Dr. Thomas J. Tobin, a specialist in teaching, learning, and academic technology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he is a founding member of the university's Center for Teaching, Learning, and Mentoring. Dr. Tobin is an internationally celebrated scholar and speaker on technology-mediated education and is the co-author of Evaluating Online Teaching, Implementing Best Practices, as well as the co-author of Reach Everyone, Teach Everyone, Universal Design for Learning in Higher Education. He also has an incredibly cool handlebar mustache. Dr. Tom Tobin, welcome to the CoLab. Thank you, Josh, for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you and your listeners. Excellent. Now, you have spoken all over the world on the topic of quality in technology-mediated education. So first of all, what exactly do you mean by technology-mediated education? Well, for centuries, we've had technology-supported education. We use chalkboards, pen and paper, slide rules, compasses, lab equipment to help us share what we know and help learners to expand their curiosity. Now, starting in the late 1700s, we saw the first technology-mediated education. Those were postal correspondence courses, all from the comfort and convenience of your mailbox. Now, the difference between technology support and technology mediation has to do with the environment in which teaching and learning take place. If that environment is a real-time physical space, like a classroom, any technology that we utilize supports our interactions. When the environment itself offers us ways to move beyond real-time, same-place interactions, the technology is the space that we're using for learning. It mediates or is the medium for the learning. Now, we're now at the point where the difference between on-ground classroom-based education and technology-mediated learning, things like postal correspondence courses, online asynchronous offerings in a learning management system or LMS, and live Zoom-mediated class meetings, that difference is vanishing. It used to be that evidence of good teaching or evidence of learning actually sticking with students looked different depending on the medium, but not anymore. Today, we adopt a variety of tech tools, both to support and mediate our learning experiences. And even people teaching what we can call traditional on-ground in-person courses frequently use technology supports and tech mediation to enrich and expand the ways in which learners engage both during and beyond the formal spaces, places, and times that we've set up in our catalog descriptions. That makes so much sense. And it seems like more and more the world is going that way, where the virtual world and the real world are becoming more and more enmeshed within one another, both in education and beyond. And so how do you go about evaluating the quality of an educational experience, whether it's technology mediated or not? Back in 1987, Arthur Chickering and Zelda Gamson wrote Seven Principles for Good Practice in Undergraduate Education, which laid out what was then a somewhat controversial idea. Good teaching is good teaching. 
regardless of the subject matter, level of inquiry, modality of instruction, or the approach taken by the instructor. These principles have stood up remarkably well over the past 35 plus years, principally because they don't specify techniques or practices that add up to good teaching, but talk about the ways in which instructors can create safe, welcoming, challenging, and supportive environments for their learners. That sounds like a great resource. We'll definitely have to stick that in the show notes. And I'm sure it was an inspiration to you as you wrote Evaluating Online Teaching, Implementing Best Practices. So can you tell us a little bit about your key takeaways from that book as you explored what some of the best practices were in online teaching methodologies and how you really evaluated the efficacy of those teaching methods? Evaluating Online Teaching was my first book in the ed development field, and it came about as a result of working with Ann Taylor from Penn State and Jean Mandernack from Grand Canyon University to create and facilitate a three-day intensive workshop on how to evaluate online teaching The three of us came together because our expertise in the field overlapped. Annie was the student and peer observation expert. Jean's work focused on the observation and assessment process itself, and I had the administrative observation and oversight experience. As we developed our materials for the workshop, we noticed that there were a number of article-length treatments on the topic, but no one at that time had done a book-length guide about what was different about online asynchronous teaching. As we were writing, we recognized three big things. First, Chickering and Gamson were right. Good teaching is good teaching, regardless of the spaces and places we use to engage in it. And there are a few constants that we should be able to observe in any healthy and effective teaching scenario. This helped us do a little myth-busting in the book, too, uncovering in-person biases that don't actually point to teaching effectiveness, like eye contact or voice tone. Second, we realized quickly that in observing traditional on-ground teaching, everyone tends to conflate two elements that need to be separated, course design and teaching behaviors. There are a number of factors that affect students' performance that have nothing to do with teaching itself. So students' learning outcomes, their satisfaction, their access to resources, even Even the type of curriculum and the design of the program's learning paths, none of those things reliably correlate with an instructor's ability to foster an environment and conversation that can lead to learning. So our second big point in the book is we should observe and assess the design of online materials, like those in an LMS or in a media repository, and the teaching behaviors exhibited by instructors, but these should be separate things. We cannot assume that the people who designed the materials are always the same people teaching from them. Third, we took a cue from Tony Pina and Larry Bond's work, and we talked about what is actually measurable in a traditional observation of a face-to-face classroom session versus a week or a unit in an online asynchronous environment. Just because there's more stuff in a fixed format in an LMS shell, for instance, doesn't mean that quantity equals quality, and a lot of that content doesn't count as teaching behaviors anyway. We discovered that things like activity feedback, speed, and quality quality, discussion frequency and quality, responses to student questions, how often people posted announcements, login frequency for the instructor. All of those represented in-the-moment teaching behaviors, or they predicted teacher engagement in meaningful ways. So evaluating online teaching, this book helped us to see that a lot of what we do in 
on-ground observations of teaching is based on subjective assessments of subjective criteria. We ended up advocating that if we want to be this analytical when we're observing and assessing online teaching, we should cast the same critical eye on our existing observation protocols for face-to-face -face teaching too. And there's a kind of a postscript here. Evaluating online teaching came out in 2015, and we covered the range of what were then possible online instructional scenarios, what we might nowadays call traditional online spaces like learning management systems, shells that afforded a highly mediated and structured range of possible interactions among instructors, learners, the tool sets within those spaces. So they were largely asynchronous and online teaching at that time left a clear trail of observable phenomena. Announcement posts, discussion threads, comments on student work, they're all captured in the LMS. At the time of publication, we worried that such a, an overabundance of observable data points would lead to, you know, analysis paralysis. And we advised observers of online teaching to limit their observations to one unit or one online session, just like an on-ground observer might observe only one or two class periods of live class time. But these days, we now find ourselves in an instructional world where the bounded environment of the LMS seems almost simple, especially as a result of the emergency remote instruction during the COVID-19 pandemic. The possible permutations and definitions of quote-unquote online teaching, they've just exploded. For those of us who are tasked with observing, evaluating, crediting, critiquing the teaching that happens at our institutions, we can no longer assume that looking in one place, whether that's a classroom, an LMS shell, or a Zoom recording of a live remote session, we can't assume that that will afford us a representative sample of the teaching practices and behaviors that our instructors exhibit. The missing chapter. This is great. And it's so exciting because as you noted, technology is just changing so rapidly. And our society is too in response to things like the COVID pandemic and just the shifting demands and needs of, of students and people as people become more uh, flexible and more remote and more globally connected through these uh, this all this technology mediation that is uh, influencing our lives. And it sounds kind of like multiple means of engaging in an educational experience which reminds me of the groundbreaking 2018 book that you co-authored, Reach Everyone, Teach Everyone, Universal Design for Learning in Higher Education. So talk to us a little bit about that book. What's at the heart of your take on universal design for learning in higher ed? Well, two ideas were the genesis for the Reach Teach book. First, that Universal Design for Learning, or UDL, needed some translating for a higher education audience. UDL is a powerful framework for lowering barriers and providing learners with what we call the big five, voice, choice, agency, safety, and belonging in their learning engagements, interactions, and activities. But UDL was initially created for serving disabled and at potential elementary school learners. Like that goes all the way back to the mid-1980s. So a lot of the underlying assumptions, the research findings, and the practical guidance about UDL was in school-based settings. And during the early 2010s, as Kirsten Beeling and I were doing our separate advocacy work and research, we found a number of colleagues who were adopting UDL principles in their individual work with college and university learners. Now, a mutual friend, Katie Linder, connected the two of us, and we started to realize that there was a groundswell of people trying out UDL ideas in higher education, despite not having a lot of empirical research to support its efficacy with adult learners, at least not at that time. 
Fortunately, as we were writing the book, a number of colleagues from around the world were doing that basic research about the impact of UDL practices in higher ed. And we were grateful to be able to showcase some early adopter and early research models in the book. The other goal of the book was to simplify what could be an overwhelming set of theoretical ideas and framework details into an actionable set of practices that anyone who interacts with learners can test, try, and understand. So both Kirsten and I wanted to reach beyond the 10% of colleagues who come to all of our professional development offerings to speak directly to the instructors, staff members, and campus leaders who don't make any changes unless they're huge, already underway, and supported by evidence and results. We wanted to make it simple for people to understand the reasoning behind UDL and then provide concrete ways that everyone can apply the principles of the framework in their everyday work with learners. That makes a lot of sense. And you've done such a great job, not only taking all of that research and distilling it, but also providing some actionable steps that people can take to use these kind of principles in practice. And one of them is the plus one approach that you describe in your book about universal design for learning as an easy way for professors just to get started applying the principles of UDL in their courses. So can you tell us a little bit more about how that plus one approach works? I was honored to hear your colleagues Megan Giebert and Lucy Wolski introduce UDL through that plus one lens in the Colab Season 1, Episode 7 podcast about UDL. Now, as Megan noted in that show, UDL can seem overwhelming, hyper-detailed, focused through a clinical lens of neurobiology. As learners, we're much more than brains attached to bodies, more than the sum of just our chemical processes. The UDL framework arose from research about those chemical processes, though. Under what conditions are we usually best able to engage with new ideas, take in information, practice with what we've just encountered? So there's a very specific cascade of neurochemical signals that allow humans to integrate new knowledge among our deeply learned existing patterns. And that stream of signals breaks out roughly into the affective, recognition, and strategic phases of the learning process. That's the why, the what, and the how of UDL, like you and your colleagues were talking about in that episode. So if we want to examine that at a neurochemical level, we talk about the engagement cycle of UDL via the acetylcholine uptake pathways through the hippocampus. This is the reason that we tend to remember and learn better when we've had adequate sleep, for example. If those uptake paths are already occupied, or if not enough norepinephrine and acetylcholine bind to axonal receptors, we won't catch that idea or that process during that particular learning experience. So have you ever gotten, gotten introduced to somebody, you start a conversation with them, and then suddenly realize two minutes later that you've forgotten their name? Yeah. Happens uh, all the time. Okay. De deficient acetylcholine uptake. Uh, I'll remember that next time at a cocktail party. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I got to check in with the listeners. Are you even still with us? Most of us who are teaching want to know about strategies that work. We want evidence-based ideas, sure, but most of us aren't hooking up our students to electrode caps to measure brain activity either. So in Reach Everyone, Teach Everyone, I took the work that the scientists at CAST had done in defining the three principles of UDL, and then they created 31 checkpoints for practice. It's an initially overwhelming set of actions to take, and I tried to reduce it to one principle, plus 
one. That is, if there is one way for an interaction to happen now, whether it's with materials, with other learners, with the instructors, support staff, with the community, make just one more way for that interaction to happen. The plus one approach, it's a starting point. It helps people to feel like they can take one action, do one thing, take one small step and see how inclusive design creates voice, choice, agency, safety, and belonging for learners. I love that you really analyzed human motivation and figured out what is going to make people most likely to take action. Of course, when you see just a huge path in front of you and it seems like the end is not in sight, it's hard to take those initial steps. But when it's just one step and then another one, little by little, all of a sudden you're down the path, you look back and you've gone quite a ways. So it's really, really encouraging method, I think, and, and takes into account just the way that people are motivated to make changes. I'm just so grateful that you shouted out our episode about universal design for learning. What were your impressions of the of the show on UDL? So many folks, when they're presenting on universal design for learning, they talk about the advantages of adopting the UDL framework. And I was very pleased to hear uh, you and your colleagues talking both about the plus side of it and also what are the challenges? It can feel daunting. Uh, it may be a little too clinical for folks. And so it was a very balanced presentation of not only why should you adopt it? But it was also critical. You were trying to explore, examine, poke at, and figure out where does this fit within an already busy instructor's day of teaching, grading, prep, doing advising, taking care of all kinds of different responsibilities. And it was great for me to hear how you are thinking about taking a theory and turning it into actual implementation and action. I love your identifying as a member of the loyal opposition, just kind of in your worldview and your way of, of going about things and really being critical and skeptical in a, in a supportive way, in a way that really is diving deeper and trying to make things better, whatever it is that you're addressing. And I, I loved your, your website. You have so much uh, great information about yourself and your work, and we'll certainly put that in the show notes as well. And I was reading your professional philosophy in which you write that I ascribe to the idea idea that everyone can learn if only we give them the tools, the time, and the room to do so. Some of my proudest moments relate to those students who came into my classes thinking they were not college material because they had struggled in the past. So Tom, tell me about one of those moments in which you were able to change a student's view of themselves and their own abilities. Well, how about six? So the majority, of, <laughs> the majority <laughs> of the credit courses that I've taught over my career have been freshman composition in one form or another, the course that everyone has to take regardless of your major. As a gen ed requirement, freshman composition can be a dull and lifeless course. Everybody learns how to read scholarly sources critically, how to write an expository essay, how to wrangle with a citation style like MLA or APA, and how to follow the format that the instructor deems will be most useful in future future courses across the curriculum, right? So one semester in the early 2000s, I was teaching an 8 a.m. freshman comp course at a university in Pittsburgh. In my course that term were six friends who were all on the college basketball team. They all sat together. They worked together when we did group activities, and they generally traveled as a pack. They were also collectively not strong writers when they came into my classroom and joked about, you know, aiming for a C in order to get in, get out, and get on with the rest of their college experience. After a few failing level submissions, 
submissions and some one-on-one -on -one conversations that weren't really going anywhere, I asked to meet with all six of them. And I asked them one question, how does basketball work? They laughed and they said, I must be joking. How could a grown man not know the rules and strategies of basketball? I revealed to them that I was a hockey fan and never had so much as set foot on a basketball court outside of grade school gym class. So I asked them to explain the sport to me like I was a five-year-old. And they did in detail. They paused to help my understanding. They drew connections with me. They celebrated an hour later when I could repeat some fundamentals back to them. So I thanked them for their patience, their expertise, and their time. And then I explained that my office hours were like that coaching session they had just done for me. I was there to explain the game and coach them up, but they had to put in the work. So fast forward to the end of the semester. All six were still in my class and all six earned passing marks. Now that made my heart glad, but what made my heart more glad though was when one of them stopped after class to tell me they had told their teammates about my analogy and now the entire basketball and lacrosse teams were using their instructor's office hours as what they called coaching time. That's what I mean by everyone can learn with the right tools, time, and enough room to imagine it happening. You found that one question that was going to light a fire under these students. You know, you could talk all day about office hours, but if they're able to call it a coaching session and that is really meaningful language to them and it allows them to take advantage of that resource and change their 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 academic life, well, that's a wonderful thing. So I think that's just a beautiful example of meeting students where they're at. I was trying to find, because they were in my class, I was the person who knew how everything worked and they did not know. And I tried to flip that around. What's something where they know how it works and I do not know? Definitely. And it's really interesting because that role reversal, giving students the mantle of expertise, uh, kind of lowering your own status intentionally as a teaching tool, as a way to spark a conversation and empower another person. That's a really powerful thing. I think a lot of faculty don't realize the impact that that kind of thing can have. It's very playful and it's very human. And so I think that's just so wonderful. Um, and it, it seems like in your quest to meet your students where they're at, you really are... Uh, exhibiting this this mentality of service. And I want to tie that into something else you write in your professional philosophy, which you say you say it predicated on the belief that I have been called to serve my neighbors, especially those who struggle against disadvantages. So I'm really struck by your use of the word a calling, a calling to serve. And I associate the word a calling with almost a deeply religious or spiritual motivation. So can you tell me more about what your calling means to you in this work that you've chosen to do in the field of education. Josh, I imagine you grew up in a religious tradition, and I did too. So my use of the word calling, though, is meant in a humanistic sense. Throughout my career, I've been on the receiving end of kindness, support, understanding, and forgiveness in both professional and personal circumstances. It is rewarding now to be at a point in my work and my career where my goals aren't individual ones anymore. Instead of the striving and climbing that marked my earlier days, I've recognized that I'm now in a position to be able to help champion newer voices in our field, question why we do what we do, and think collectively about how to welcome thinkers and doers for whom access to our conversations was previously blocked. So it's, it's curious to me that my colleagues who ascribe to religious ideas have similar goals when I compare them to my own as an atheist. So compassion, understanding, love, support. I believe that if the life I'm living now is the only go around I'll have, it's up to me to live it in a way that I can be proud of. 
I've been blessed with the example of dozens of mentors, colleagues, and friends who've shown me their own examples of collaboration, support, help for peers, and I'm grateful that I can pay that forward in whatever ways that I can. I say that no matter who you are. I have 20 minutes for a phone call or a video chat with you, right? I love to hear people's stories, connect them with others who are pulling in the same direction, and speak up for voices that need to be heard in our field. I love that inspiration from the humanities. It's a humanistic calling. That's very beautiful. And also the way you talk about letting go of some of the individual striving and instead working toward collective goals and lifting up the voices of those who may not have had the same opportunities or may not be at the same place as you are. That's very inspiring. And I think it speaks to your rich background. You have such a fascinating background from a deep expertise in things like pre-Raphaelite art and Victorian literature to, of course, education technology and even copyright law. And it sounds like you've learned quite a bit along the way. So it's it's working out pretty well. And you've, you've followed not only your nose, but, uh, but where the demand is. And you found kind of a niche for yourself uh, that's you know, been very impactful. And you've been able to adapt as long, uh, along with the world as the world has changed and transformed with technology at, at the fore um, of that experience. So that's, mm-hmm. that's wonderful. Now, Tom, I have to ask, tell me more about your fantastic handlebar mustache. How did you, it's so great. It's so distinctive. How did you settle on, you know, this distinguished handlebar mustachioed look? <laughs> well, I took a double major in my undergraduate work in English and K through 12 education. When I was a senior, I did six months of student teaching, working with seventh and 12th grade language arts students. Now, my program leaders assigned me to teach in the same high school from which I had recently graduated. I was teaching people who had been middle schoolers and high school freshmen when I was a high school senior. So in other words, early on, there was a little bit of confusion about the boundaries I was trying to set. One way that I marked the boundary was in my physical appearance. I came to work in a shirt and tie and slacks, and I grew my beard out as well. Fast forward to 2013, I was working at Northeastern Illinois University in Chicago. And one Halloween, I wanted to dress up as a pirate to give out candy to the kids in our neighborhood. So I decided to shave off everything but the mustache and the little thin Van Dyke chin beard. I bought some mustache wax. I enjoyed my Halloween. Everything worked splendidly. So I went into work that week with a giant handlebar mustache. And that happened to also be the week that I gave my first invited talk at a small university in Minnesota. When I'd present at conferences or connect with colleagues who wanted me to come and speak at their events or do a workshop or long format program with them, it was always, oh, you're the one with the giant mustache. And it's been a bit of a trademark ever since. And I still wonder how I'd look clean shaven these days. I don't know, maybe one day, hmm. It's like your calling card, you know, I'm that ed tech pirate. I'm not sure I would uh, that I would ever claim piracy as part of my expertise, but I, I very much enjoy being recognizable in my field, but also being completely anonymous at the grocery store. It's kind of the right level for me. Tell me a little bit about your most recent publication, Guidance for Implementing Universal Design for Learning in Irish Further Education and Training. So how did that project come about and what were your key takeaways from it? Oh, fantastic. I I loved working on this book. It's also the longest title I've ever put on anything because it's technically a government report for the government of Ireland. 
One of my biggest takeaways from writing the UDL in Irish Further Ed book with Anne Heelan and Dara Ryder was its deeply collaborative nature. While I crafted the skeleton of the guidebook, our entire author team brought every chapter to a group of more than 25 representatives from further education colleges throughout Ireland and people from the various government bodies and ministries, all of whom had constructive and practical ideas to bring to the creation of the guidebook. Now, the most rewarding part of writing that book for me was hearing all of the stories of how instructors, support staffers, campus leaders, and government representatives worked together to create more accessible situations for their students in programs as diverse as horticulture, health careers, chemistry, carpentry, mathematics. Those individual what I did and why narratives formed the backbone of the book, anchoring the theoretical content in examples from people whom the primary readership would know personally from their work in the sector. So, uh, of course, UDL in Irish Further Ed is also a splendid book for folks in higher education beyond Ireland to read, too. It's got plenty of specific examples of UDL in action, and it's designed as a workbook and guidebook so you can use it to adopt UDL at an individual and a program level. I love the what I did and why framework with just all these great examples of how UDL can look in action. I think that's really helpful for practitioners to get a sense for how they might, you know, imagine uh, changing things in their classroom to make things more inclusive and set up all students to succeed. And I know that faculty development is a big passion of yours. In fact, you've helped to found two university centers for teaching and learning. One is a Fulbright Fellow in Hungary and one at the University of Wisconsin-Madison where you currently work. So what have been some of your core goals in establishing those centers for faculty development? And what have been some of your key lessons learned in doing so? Well, I've had the pleasure of seeing faculty development evolve. It used to be a sideline that faculty members ourselves performed as part of our everyday duties, and it's evolved into a recognized field of study and work. The very first teaching and learning centers were established only about 30 years ago. Now, we can find older examples, but the, the vast majority of them started up only about 30 years ago. I've gone from being a center of one in the late 1990s to joining new and growing centers in the early 2000s to helping to establish new centers in the past 10 years. So for our new Center for Teaching, Learning, and Mentoring, or CTLM, at UW-Madison, I crafted an internal report for our leadership teams with ideas for becoming a world-class teaching and learning center. The core tenets of that advice boil down to knowing the politics, the teaching climate, and the value that's placed on teaching in the institution. For instance, I suggested that our CTLM might be well served by framing our initial charge within three existing conversations. First, the place and value of teaching in a Carnegie Research One level university. Second, aligning the work of our CTLM with existing teaching support units that were already working across campus. And third, the desire to establish the CTLM as a world-class exemplar of teaching center practices. We've got the first two already moving and we're coming into our second full year as a center, and we're starting to look at that third one here. Now, my biggest lesson from standing up some previous centers is that in any new center, there's a progression that teams must follow, starting with becoming part of the everyday work of the organization, and then ending with outreach to broader communities. Our UW-Madison center leaders started with defining the role of teaching and learning centers at Research One institutions generally. Excuse me, then we talked about our 
goals for our work in global, national, state, and organizational contexts. So based on the data that we have about learner performance and gap areas, we identified a handful of potential focus areas and outlined a path for the evolution of our center's activity over time. Our final setup task was to craft a call to investment and action for campus leadership. So too often, presidents and provosts think that they have, you know, checked the box just by creating a teaching center at all. And our work is to ask for tangible, measurable, and useful ways that the institution shows, its shows that it values teaching as a skill. That's so important, especially in research-focused institutions. And I love your focus on customizing what the teaching and learning center is, is going to offer and the culture of it to the institution itself and the needs of it. It makes so much sense, kind of like you're meeting students where you're at, where they're at, you're meeting faculty where they're at and institution where it is in order to have the most impact and really be able to, to make change. In, um, indeed, I'm kind of enjoying being the quote unquote secret boss whisperer, you know, being able to to know what things are going on at the strategic level, as well as the individual efforts that we're offering as well. So you have also facilitated professional development programming for university faculty all across the world, both in person and also from the comfort of your own home as technology has allowed us to converse uh, all across the globe. So tell me about some of what you've learned in the process of putting together professional development for university professors. What has worked really well and what do you maybe no longer do? I've really enjoyed learning about the ways in which higher education is structured in various places. So I have a larger view of the policies, goals, practices, pitfalls that we all face, regardless of where we live, work, or study. I've learned that pretty much everyone feels the tension between academic freedom at the individual instructor level and the need to standardize on a consistent set of outcomes or experiences at the macro level. So one big takeaway for me is that people, groups, institutions, systems, they don't change unless they themselves perceive a need to do so. So it's wonderful to know that researchers and practitioners are coming up with new ideas and approaches, but it won't be, oh, we need to do something unless and until you yourself define a gap, a challenge, a problem that's big enough to want to address it. I've had far more success in my keynotes, workshops, and long-form consultations when I've asked questions like, what's something that doesn't go as you had planned over and over. Once people identify their own challenges, I can work with them to frame experiments, responses, ways to measure whether our actions made a difference. When I was first starting out with my speaking and consulting advocacy, I enjoyed using big pop culture themes and metaphors as ways to help colleagues frame and enter the conversation. I did Harry Potter and Marvel Cinematic Universe themed talks, but the one that I came back to time and again was Star Wars. Not only was practically everyone in a given audience familiar with the Star Wars universe, I mean, they've been going since 1977, it's a fictional space that espouses many of the accessibility tenets for which I also advocate. So doors in all buildings throughout the galaxy slide open. How do you get from one level the bad guy's super weapon, the Death Star, to another one? Elevators. And how do you enter pretty much any spaceship? A ramp comes down. Star Wars is an accessible universe that accommodates robot characters like R2-D2 who get around using wheels. It was kind of a bitter irony for me to realize that by using an inclusive metaphor of a science fiction world, I was excluding people in every audience if they've never seen Star Wars movies or they weren't giant sci-fi nerds like me. 
I've shifted my focus back to the real humans and real environments in which we operate so that wherever I happen to be on the planet, we can collectively think about and celebrate effective and practical ideas for teaching and learning. This is hilarious. I love this image of you dressed up from the Star Wars universe. But I also love your reflection that, you know, it wasn't meeting everyone's needs. Um, and it was something you were very passionate about, but didn't necessarily uh, work for all your whole audience. So great reflections there. I love your role as an asker of impactful questions, somebody who really brings the thoughtful questions to a consultation, and in that way meets the person where they're at and allows them to um, find the internal motivation to take action. Because if you just are lecturing at them, well, they might not necessarily uh, see the need for it. But if they come to it themselves, and you're able to lead them to that through the process of inquiry, then they're a lot more likely to actually do something about it. So as a leader in a university center for teaching and learning, how do you see your role on campus? And how do you make change and take leadership? How do you influence faculty members to apply the best practices that you study in their classrooms, particularly now at a time when faculty feel overwhelmed and overworked? How do you engage them in meaningful professional growth and development? Oh, it's a splendid question, Josh. First, though, I should clear up that I'm not a formal leader in my teaching and learning center, at least not in terms of the hierarchy of the institution. My business card says senior teaching and learning developer, and that's kind of the way I like it. I'm grateful that in my new role, I get to create support, and even lead the evolution of our center, our colleagues, our institution. I play the role of a trusted colleague who's been there, done that, and written a book about it along the way. So my role on campus complements that of my colleagues in our teaching center. We have instructional designers, media experts, project managers, consulting staff, whose everyday work focuses on the work that individual instructors, lab managers, teaching assistants perform. Collectively, our center helps colleagues structure, create, and implement evidence-based teaching techniques. My role is to work at the strategic level, thinking about how departments, schools, how the entire university can position resources and priorities to support, value, and strengthen the teaching that's happening across campus. And that's what moves the needle, by the way. We can do all kinds of good work helping one instructor with one activity in one class meeting, and we can offer micro-session professional development. We can bring our activities into faculty meetings. It won't help that person much in the way of reducing feelings of being overwhelmed. We'll never individual actions our way out of structural problems. So my work is gently to nudge senior leadership to identify teaching as a subject deserving of being part of our retention, reward, and promotion structures. And that's a tall order at an internationally ranked research-focused university. However, when we reframe the conversation to how do we offer world-class cutting-edge teaching to complement our renowned research programs, then senior leaders begin to create meaningful rewards for teaching excellence, for things like expecting quality in the classroom, as well as in the research lab. I think it's really insightful the way that you're focusing on reframing the conversation. Because of course, who wouldn't want impactful, the most impactful teaching possible going on at your institution, especially when we see our students as the, the ultimate audience that we're here to serve and lift up. You've shared a lot of great stories, but I wonder if you have another story to share about a moment that you'll never forget as an educator. 
You know, the moment I'm thinking about happens a lot, thankfully. Whether I'm teaching a formal credit course to freshman undergraduates or leading a professional development institute for a membership organization, or I'm facilitating a seminar series for a college or university client, there's always a moment of transfer where the tone and actions in the engagement shift from me sharing new ideas and practices to the learners taking things on themselves and grappling with them. So the most rewarding thing I can hear is a student or colleague say, you know, I've been thinking about this idea and here's how I understand it. I think I can build on it, modify it, make it my own. Now, when I first started teaching, I thought that the whole experience was about me, the expert super genius person, pouring knowledge into the heads of my students who would appreciate, repeat, and internalize every scintillating word I spoke. Now, I quickly realized that I don't know all of the things. I'm only a beginner myself in so many places. And the real joy of teaching is seeing your learners engage with problems, ideas, concepts in ways that I might never have thought to do. The longer I've been a teacher, the more I've tried to get out of the way of my students and colleagues to provide them with space, respect, and support to pursue their own ideas. Tom, I'm going to ask you the question I ask all of my interview guests. Tell us about the role that curiosity has played in your life. Oh, I love this question. Um, two examples might tell you what you want to know here. When I was 12, my nine-year-old brother got a big track toy for his birthday. He loved that toy. I couldn't figure out how the thing worked, though. So I took a set of precision screwdrivers, pliers, and a miniature crowbar down to my father's workbench in the basement, and I carefully took the entire toy apart. Now, between then and now, I've recognized that the never-ending stream of why questions that kids innately want to ask, it never really shut off for me. I've always wanted to figure out why we do what we do, why our social, political, ethical, moral, personal interactions are the way they are. I'm deeply sensitive to questions about received wisdom, especially where the structures around us limit how we can respond. And that leads to a second quick story about curiosity. One Thanksgiving many years ago, my wife and I were visiting my cousin and her family for the holiday. They had a Wii video game system. We played a lot of games that long weekend. The You Don't Know Jack party game, Lego Star Wars, Mario Kart, right? But my favorite, Cora Pinka Marble Saga. It's a game where the objective is to get a marble from a start line to a finish line in a 3D maze. The twist is the same as with the wooden box marble maze game. You have to tilt the controller and that tilts the entire world of the video game. So when we got our own Wii system a while later, Marble Saga was the first title we bought. Every level is timed, and you can progress through the game only by besting that maximum time limit. So after timing out repeatedly on a particularly difficult level, I realized that the finish point was almost directly above the start point. The objective was to maneuver the controller to play upside down for a good part of the out and back run of the level. But what if I could just flip the controller upside down in just the right way so the marble fell out of the start point and directly into the finish point? So I suggested this to my wife and she laughed and she said, even if you can do it, it would take hundreds of tries to get it right. It took 76 tries. I finished the level in 1.5 seconds. The time it took for the marble to fall from the start point to the finish point. Now, it had taken me nearly three hours to be able to flip the controller just right, but once I had it, 
I had it. I could beat that level with my new super flip technique nearly every time. So it's perhaps a splendid metaphor for a lot of my scholarly and professional work. I am seldom satisfied with that's the way we've always done it. I'm always looking for more elegant or more useful ways to make sense of the world around us. And I'm always up for finding weird and splendid shortcuts, simplifications, and practices. So yeah, throughout my career, my curiosity has gotten me into some strange places. And I'm also grateful for what I'm able to learn and for the people I find who are also seekers like me. Definitely. Those are great stories. And it's so playful as well. It kind of speaks to the power of what some people would call gamification. And I was wondering, actually, since your stories about curiosity do really relate to your getting so deep into games that you just had to come up with an entirely new and unique way to conquer them. <laughs> Tell me about what you what you think of, of this idea of gamification and playfulness in teaching and learning. It goes back to motivation. I think unless we have a reason why we want to learn something, we don't learn it. So technology has afforded us a lot of different ways to stay with and stay engaged in learning scenarios far beyond the formal spaces, places, and times of our educational institutions. And that kind of gamification, the idea that if you have a reason to stick with a process, that you'll stick with it way beyond what other people tell you to do. That's the kind of inspiration and engagement that I, I think gamification writ large affords us. Nice. I love that. Again, connecting it back to motivation and just the authentic experience of being human that we've all, we are all in, you know, and looking back on your experience and when you have done something 76 times just because you have the <laughs> innate desire to get it right. And it feels fun the whole time and engaging as opposed to, you know, normally we'd think doing something 76 times would feel like drudgery. But in this case, you were like all in. Thomas, we're wrapping up. Do you have any recommendations for our audience? Perhaps something that's been meaningful to you or something that has influenced or inspired you? Well, I, I enjoy books, poetry, music, research, literature, and media. But if I had to end our conversation on any note at all, it's to recommend connecting with other humans who care deeply about the work we do, the students we serve, and the community we build. That's the most nourishing thing we can do. So I always have 20 minutes to talk with anybody, hear their story, and find points of connection. So maybe one of you listening now would like to connect with me. Who knows? We've covered a lot together already, and I'm grateful to have the chance to talk with you today, Josh, and with all of the CoLab podcast listeners. Friends, you can find me on most social media at Thomas J. Tobin, and my website is thomasjtobin.com if you're interested in connecting, collaborating, or working with me. And as you can probably tell by now, I'm a fan of the work that everyone is doing, and I have a strong desire to see what comes next and who will take us there. So listeners, it's been an honor to spend some time with all of you. If our paths cross online or on the road, introduce yourself. I'd love to hear your story too. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Josh. It's been my pleasure. It's been wonderful to have you here. Dr. Tom Tobin is an academic renaissance man and the author of Reach Everyone, Teach Everyone, Universal Design for Learning in Higher Education. And I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab Podcast, a production of the instructional design team at the Teaching and Learning Collaborative here at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for joining us. And as always, stay curious.
and Tom Tobin. May the force be with you. <laughs> and also with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>